Hey everybody, it is Richard Harris and I'm super excited for today's Surf and Sales podcast. Um, obviously I'm here with our partner Scott Lease and we are super excited to talk to a really, really uh, smart individual and a good friend of ours who we've both gotten to know over the years, Corey Bray from Closed Loop. Um, Corey's also like, I don't know, I think he's written almost as many books as Stephen King, I'm not sure yet. Um, and we're, we're certainly excited to see, you know, what the movie options are like. I, I know we're going to cover a lot of things and hopefully Corey won't go too Hollywood on us at some point. But, um, and, and for the record is for those on, on audio, you don't know this, but when we first got on board, Corey's like, I need to go fix my hair. And of course I'm sitting here going, really, you're going to tell me that. So anyhow, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for letting me give you a little bit of a jab right there. Uh, thanks for coming on board today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. And thanks for getting me out of bed at 7.30 in the morning and pushing this back to 7.32 so I could fix my hair a little bit. That's all right. That's all right. Before we, before we jump into stuff, though, Corey, um, for context, right, because it's really important for people, if they don't know you, to understand where your frame of reference often comes from, right? So can you tell us just a little bit about Closed Loop and the kind of books you write? Uh, it's not meant to be a plug as, as much as it is just to give people context so they understand your frame of reference as we try to chat about things. Yeah, totally. So we write sales books. We open source frameworks. Our idea is that sales organizations should be built and grown off of frameworks that create repeatable process inside the organization, help people do their jobs better today, help managers coach better, and then create the opportunity for scale. And we also think that content should be free. And so we open source everything on Amazon. It costs $15 instead of $15,000. And people so can. I want to, first of all, like we hate buzzwords. Yeah. So, uh, Buzz yeah. snap me. I don't have my taser, Richard. My taser's in the other room. Do you want me to go get it and start snapping That's myself? Right. No, no, yeah. no. Right. So explain a little bit. Um, and, and also for people who are earlier in their career. Yeah. Framework, right? Process. What part of the process are you looking at specifically? When you talk about frameworks, what does that mean? And obviously, um, only because I know the titles, feel free to mention the titles of a couple of books. Uh, again, we're not here to plug them, but we do want people to, again, understand your context. Yeah, totally. So example, the latest one's hiring, onboarding, and ramping salespeople. And you can sit here and be like, onboarding, onboarding's fun. Well, is, anybody's ever gotten a cruise, you get onboard the ship, woohoo, how fun is that? Is that hard? No, you're just getting overwhelmed with all the stuff you've never seen before. So instead of a world where you've got people that have worked at a company for a long time, telling people, hey, here's a bunch of new stuff that you don't know, overwhelming them with knowledge that won't stick. We put a framework in place that helps them identify the talent, engage new hires, and then accelerate them through mastery. So it's called the team framework, and we break it down step by step. So it's easy to understand, and people can repeat the same process over time instead of constantly reinventing the wheel. That's it. Corey, what, what helped you kind of make the leap and decide to put pen to paper and, and, you know, write these books as opposed to just blog posts and, you know, LinkedIn posts and that, and that kind of thing. You know, it took me a really long time before I, I guess had the confidence to be like, well, maybe I have something interesting to say and, and write my own book and put it out there. And I'm just curious, was there, was there a moment? Did you just know straight away? Like, yeah, publish all this shit. There was an exact moment. Remember when LinkedIn changed its interface two and a half years ago or so? Yeah. And they deprioritized long form posts. The articles, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm sitting here writing articles, spending two, three hours writing an article, and then all of a sudden, instead of a thousand people seeing it, 50 people see it. And I said, well, geez, yeah. why am I wasting my time doing this? Let's see if I can write something long form. 
And the first step was to take a bunch of posts and try to tie them together into a book, which ended up being terrible. It's like, well, I already did all this work. Let's just go back and fix it and redo it. And so we did. And all of a sudden, it seemed to work in my, my background as an analyst and, and in college. I just wrote just really tight subheadings, bullet points, really concise language. And it's pretty easy to do once you have your system down, as opposed to writing long form narrative with, with a lot of characters, conflicts and, and arcs and things like that, which is really hard. In my opinion. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this, Corey, um, not to pick on you, but, but, uh, it means he's going to pick on me. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Um, you're a millennial, correct? I am. How, how one of them. but, but here's my question. How old were you when you wrote the first book? Even if it was bad, how old were you? No, I was 32 or 33. Okay. Yeah. And in hindsight, could you have written a, a decent book at 26, 27? I could have. It would have taken more research. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and the reason I'm asking the question is that I, I know particularly millennials constantly and unfortunately keep getting berated and beat down, which they shouldn't. And I want to make sure people know that if you've got a voice, uh, you should write stuff down, whether you want to write a book, whether you do want to write a LinkedIn post like you know, branding is the huge thing these days, particularly in sales, you've got to be able to stand out. And I want to encourage other people to share their thoughts. And it doesn't really matter what kind of engagement you get on LinkedIn or any of those things. It's, it's more about just getting, I think to Corey's point, just getting in the habit of putting something down pen to paper, right? Or keyboard to, to the internet. And just getting in the habit and practicing that muscle because I think it's really, really important. Now, how many books have you guys written? Six? Five, five uh, on the market, it'll be eight and a quarter. Yeah. So now you're like cranking them out like a machine. And yeah. I think everybody needs to recognize that you do have a voice, no matter what generation you're in, you always have a perspective. And I want to encourage others to, to take those leaps and share their thoughts. So, well, the, the funny thing is that I think that people get knocked down on age and sales more than they do in other businesses. So for example, when I published my first book, everybody's like, Oh, you wrote a book. You're too young to write a book. I was like, okay, okay. Well, my friend Lauren does surgery on human beings. My right. friend Ted has more than 10 patents and that dude's like two years younger than me. Right. And so I'm too young to capture things that I've done over 10 years inside of 28,000 words. Right. It's odd. Yeah. It, I, I agree with you. So, and I think that's the, I think often when people say that, what it really means is they wish they had sat down and had the courage. Oh, that's to funny. And they didn't. And they're just yeah. jealous, which is typical of Gen X anyway. We're, we're very jealous of the millennial generation. Well, my God, there's Gen X and he kicks ass. So rock and roll. You guys and all these generations, I don't even know. What, what is the age difference? What's the cutoff? I don't even know what I, what I am. Scott, you're borderline, buddy. That's it. Yeah. How old are you, Scott? I am uh, 42. There we go. He's like 10 years older than me. That, no, no one believes that no one how do you so back to the back to the book thing so like you're you're about to have eight books published yeah give us the secret to that level of productivity 25 page outline before you write a paragraph that's the key 25 page outline before you write one paragraph is that really what you do yeah absolutely what does that mean tell me more about outline. that because yeah that, that is the exact opposite of the way that i operate so i want to yeah, well, Yogi Bear always said, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up someplace else. And I've, I've studied how other people write. I've studied James Patterson, John Grisham, Stephen King. Stephen King writes 2,000 words a day mechanically. Dude cranks out content. Right. And you guys, hey, do you know who has the biggest yard in San Francisco? 
Oh, Danielle Steele. Danielle Steele. She's yeah. released six books this year. Yeah. And she's been writing. I think she, she did her first one in 71, and she's been, she's been cranking them out. James Patterson's going to release 40 this year. And I don't use ghostwriters yet, but their common theme is they crank out these, these really robust outlines. So, for example, if, if I'm, I'm working on my customer success book. That's one of the ones I was working on last night. It's what I was working on last night. I want to understand what are all the chapters, and then within each chapter, what are the major themes, and then what are a few bullet points around each one of the major themes, write a bunch of notes to myself, maybe write some killer sentences. And once that gets done, reshape them and understand how do we merge chapters? How do we expand chapters? How, how do we how reorder long does it things? Take, how long does it take to write, to write that outline? Usually 20 or 30 hours. And then once you have the outline written, does the book just, it feels like the book just sort of flows. Now you're sort of filling in the blanks. So the first draft flows, and that's when I just get on a plane and go somewhere and, and, and sit. <laughs> here, here, here's our next question. How do you have all this time to write so many books? Because Scott and I are sitting here going, we, we struggle to get like yeah. after a week out, right? Um, yeah. all, I, all I heard was 20 to 30 hours. And I'm like, right. Yeah. You, guys, you guys have kids, Before right? I got 20 to 33 hours a year, I could probably do. You guys have kids, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. That's the difference. All right. I mean, not that people with, with kids can't write books, but when you don't, everybody's like, what do you do work at all? It's like, yeah, of course I work. I do lots of things. So what do you do, what do, you do when you're not working, right? I, I play chess and I play pool. Well, that I know. But I know this is a big passion of yours. So like explain the chess one I can understand a little more clearly, strategy-wise yeah. and whatnot. Explain to me how pool is, is helping you in your – uh, salesmanship and in your craft and in your career? Well, number one, it's helping me compete and just get a daily dose of competition. I don't yeah. play daily anymore, but I, because when I lived in Houston up until I moved to San Francisco five and a half years ago, I played on this really competitive softball team. The guy batted in front of me played triple A for the Yankees. Half the guys on my team still played adult fast pitch. And so let's, you're, let's you're just say we were competitive. You're scratching the, the itch to compete still. Right? Exactly. And so I'm sitting here thinking, what do I, what can I play that I can get really great at? I want to play in these San Francisco softball leagues for a bunch of reasons. And I said, well, I used to always be good at pool. I mean, I could be my buddies. So I went and got a pool coach and he just whipped me. And I realized that the game is way more complex than I thought. And it's, it's cool because it, it, it requires the, the mental game of chess to the extent where you get to figure out what you're doing the next three shots, but then you physically have to do it. And so to me, it was like a combination of, of softball and chess and it's just good for, for strategy. And then you can reflect on both your decision-making ability as well as your ability to physically execute, which I think is, is very similar to a lot of the work that I do on a day-to-day -day basis. How about, talk to us a little bit about strategy. If you're looking at a pool table, right? Um, and you're, as you said, you're trying to plan three shots ahead. Yep. Um, what goes through your head when you're doing that, like execution-wise? Well, the, the mistake a lot of people make is they think pool's about making shots, whereas pool's not about making shots, it's about winning the game. The first question is, do I have a path to win? And sometimes you've got problems. Problems are typically when you got a bunch of balls bunched together. And if you don't have a clear path to break those balls up, then just making shots for the sake of making shots in the interim may not get you anywhere, and it might just make it easier for your opponent to win. The question then becomes, how do I win this game? And then how do I work backwards from hitting that eight ball in or hitting that nine ball in to where I'm at right now and then executing on it. So you really think like, okay, if, if the eight ball stays there, I need to hit this to get to that. 
Then I got to hit this to get to that. So you really are, you really are sort of reverse engineering like you do in sales a lot, exactly. particularly around goal setting and revenue numbers and number of employees and backing into dials and touches and all that stuff. Right? Yeah, exactly. And then you gauge who you're playing against. If you played against somebody like a lot, like I played against this guy named Brian, who's the best defensive player I've ever seen. And I know if I do anything silly, he's just going to smoke me. So what is that? So he's the best defensive player. Talk about that. Cause that's, that feels a little bit like objection handling and yeah, working he'll put, around it all. He'll put the cue ball in a place where your only possible shots require you to hit two or three rails before you even make contact with a ball. Oh my God. Okay. And it's, it's terrifying. And then this other guy, Yoli, apparently he used to be the best player in San Francisco. If he has a shot on a ball, he makes it and he'll usually just run out the table as soon as he gets the cue in his hand. Yeah. So it's, it's knowing your opponent where you play somebody that's just walked up and has been drinking all night. Yeah. You can have a little more fun with them because you know that, they're just That'd be fumble. me and Scott. That'd be <laughs> us. So, so now I'm going to ask you a really specific so, – so you are at a pool table. Yeah. And there are a bunch of balls clumped together. Right. For, for, the, ma- for the massive amateur like me, what, what's the advice for busting up those balls? Because I just well, there's, there's, strategy because I yeah. enjoy playing pool. So in pool, there's only – you know, in sales, you can control the quantity and quality of your activity. Right. In pool, you can control your angle, your spin, and your speed. So the idea is if you, if you want to break those balls up, how do, you, how do you get the cue ball to hit them at the right angle? And that might require you applying some spin to the cue ball and hitting a couple of rails first before they run into those balls. Yep. And then depending on where they're at, where you want them to go, you might need to adjust the speed. And like anything else, the higher your speed, the more your variance and, and risk that something's going to go wrong. Wow, that's really good. That's good. Talk to us a little bit about let's shift off a of pool. Talk to us a little bit about your sales background. Like what was your first sales job? Like what, what was your first job out of college even? What's a little bit of your origin story? Yeah. Well, I worked at this industrial distribution company back in 2007 and they'd grown from 10 people to hundred people with no process, no semblance of what we would expect a business to look like. They were a commodity distributor and the price of the commodity kept going up. So they just kept making money. <laughs> That's a terrible problem to have. Yeah, right. So they, they sold steel and ended up with a 120,000 square foot warehouse and broken business processes and accounts receivable that nobody collected on. And they hired a CFO to come, to come fix it. He hired me as a sidekick and we just came in and, and tried to figure out what we could do with the company. He said, go figure out projects that make us more money. All right. And the first thing I realized was that we had 20 salespeople and almost all of them exclusively sold to the same people they'd been selling to for 25 years. Did you have any sales experience at this point in time when you got no. put in that position? No, no, no. Did they look like you like, who are, who the hell are you to come in and tell us how to make money? The owners were like, Oh wow. Young dude that knows how to use spreadsheets. He can probably figure something out. And then the salespeople were like, what we do is very complicated. I was like, dude, weren't you just at the fax machine? Yeah. And so it was a, it was funny. Like, this one guy, he would get to the office at 6.30 in the morning every day, and he would hit his number by pulling orders off of the fax machine and entering them in. And I was like, I don't know a whole lot about sales, but I'm pretty sure this isn't really sales. <laughs> but he was the second best salesperson. Uh, yeah. And so I went back to the owners and I said, well, I think that we only sell to a very small portion of the market, so we should sell to more people. Let me hire some people and I'll figure it out. And then they... <laughs> They're like, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'll figure out how to train them. 
So I went and sat with the, the people that had been doing it forever and I wrote down everything that they do and asked them a bunch of questions. So I built a sales playbook. I didn't even know it was called a sales playbook. I just like, it's a training manual for your, your original model kind of came off of the feedback that you got from some of the most tenured, most successful people at that organization. Yeah, exactly. And what happened was, is they're sitting there telling me how hard and complicated and crazy everything is. And I'm sitting there having just gone through the, the, the entrepreneurship program at Wharton, seeing that you can take complex things and make them very simple. And that's, that's what I'm good at. Isn't that, that isn't that, isn't that essentially what being a, a salesperson is? Take yeah, exactly. Find a way to dumb it down. Yeah. Exactly. And so I wrote it down in this manual and then hired three junior salespeople, plugged them into account lists that they, they had never sold to, or they, they used to sell to. And all of a sudden, guess what? They just all started buying stuff from us. And so then we expanded that program to seven people the next year. And all of a sudden I've got this shadow sales organization that the owners are supportive of and they're passive aggressive against the sales manager. So then we replaced the sales manager with this other guy. And it was, it was all, all kinds of fun. So it, it, I mean, it sounds like you kind of stumbled into sales and sales yeah. leadership. It's so interesting to me. It's fascinating because, you know, I've, I've long kind of espoused that most of us who end up in sales, at least of my generation and, and maybe yours as well, just like randomly ended up there. You know, it's like we didn't, there, first of all, there was no courses in sales when I was going to college, let alone no. majors or anything like that. It was never talked about as any kind of career path. If anything, it was like the sleazy car dealership salespeople were the only right. kind of sales jobs that you ever even heard of, right? And now you have, you know, smart folks who maybe have a psych background or, you know, went and got an MBA like you, a warden. And like, before you know it, we don't know what else to do with our lives, but we're intelligent. We know how to speak. We know how to kind of take control and work through problem solving and, and take complex messaging and distill it, distill it down and make it simple. And boom, lo and behold, there's Corey. He's a, he's a VP of sales at whatever age you are with you know, no experience prior to that. Right. And there's so many people I'm finding, um, you know, more and more, the older I get, we all kind of just stumbled into this particular career and profession and, and role. So how, yeah, totally. how, do you, how do you go from, from building that company out and all those processes to like owning the fact that this is my career, this is my profession, this is what I'm going to do. I want to teach and help other people do it. Yeah. Well, I, I worked there for five years and, and did a bunch more things and then quit and started a consulting company to help other companies do the same thing. And then hired, I went to the Sandler program for three years. Hmm. So I spent three years going to either training classes, but I did the training for a year and then I did coaching for two years after that. So you were a Sandler guy. You were, you yeah. had your own little uh, boutique of Sandler. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I did the, the program, the, the in-person program. It was like three hours a week for a year. And it was great. And that gave me some formal, training on top of the things that I've done inside the company. And then that's when I realized, well, all these people think this stuff's really complex. It's really not. You can distill it down into to something that's fairly simple. And you've got these private companies that are out training people to do things that college is just completely omitted. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a pretty interesting world. Yeah. 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 What, what's your competitive background? Because I keep, I noticed, you know, you talk about it with pool, you talk about it with chess, your softball, your itch. Um, obviously, you, you dove into this 
sales world in a unique way and sort of said, wait a minute, I got to, I got to beat the current system. Right. Yeah. Where did you play college sports or high school? I didn't, I didn't play college sports. I played, I was a starting center on my high school basketball team. We had 3,500 kids in our school seeing those pretty tough position to get. You, did you play against anybody famous we all know? I played against, have y'all ever heard of, dang it, what is it? You played for the Kings. Ronnie Price that played for the Kings? Scott, if Scott doesn't know him, then I okay. don't. That's for Ronnie, sure. Ronnie Price was this guy. He played, he played against me. Well, it's funny. Y'all, y'all know who Booker T is? The professional okay. wrestler. Yeah, wrestling. yeah Booker T. Okay. So Scott Booker knows nothing about wrestling. Richard is the wrestler. <laughs> I know more about wrestling than anybody. I will so, college against anyone. I was like a jazz musician, Booker T. No, no, no. So Booker T used to come to my games all the time, and Stevie Ray came to a couple too. So they'd be up in the stands doing the raise the roof thing. And on that team, this guy, Ronnie Price, played. He was so good, but he's 5'2". And then apparently, when he was 19 or 20, he grew. And then he had a whole NBA career. And wow. so I th- he was the only one that was – So, but remember. Go, back, go back even further. As a kid, like, did it drive your parents nuts how competitive you were? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember I got in trouble in first grade because we had this thing where if you read a book or if you read five books, you got, like, a gold bar in your whatever first graders have. Right. And, and one of the other moms called my mom and got really mad because her, her daughter was upset that anytime she got a certain amount, I just get more the next day because I wanted to be number one. <laughs> God, are, your, are your kids like that? Is that, or Braden or Caleb like that? Are you kidding, man? My kids are so competitive. I don't know where they get it. <laughs> oh, I know exactly where they get it. But, I'm, yeah. well, I'm, built the, I'm built the same way, man. Yeah. But so does Janet. So is your wife. Your wife's pretty competitive. Well. Yeah. Let me, so let, let me change gears for a second. So all three of us have led sales for organizations before, right? And we're all aware that the current trend is diminishing in terms of the tenure of every VP of sales or head of sales, right? It's depending on where you read, it's now like 15 to 18 months. Yep. I find it interesting that at least at this present moment, all three of us now run sales consulting companies and teach you know founders and salespeople how to sell but we're not in operating roles anymore i'm the most recent one i only just just left operating role do you think what's the correlation there i mean i i i'm seeing and starting to think that more and more heads of sales are like i don't know if i want to work for somebody else with these like outrageous expectations and our short you know tenure and this promise of huge liquidity events, but, oh, I've got to be there for at least four years in order to vest everything. Like, do you think more, more sales leaders will sort of go a different route and, and, and almost like unionize? Kevin Dorsey and I were talking about this, like almost unionize in a way. Like, we're all here, yeah. right? But we're not going to go work for you full time because of the way that we've been treated and the expectations are outrageous and all these different things. But like, here we are. Do you think more sales leaders, once they've been a leader and had, you know, a good run or two or three or a good exit or something, do you think more sales leaders like us are going to be like, mm, I think I might do my own thing for a little bit? I think so. Or the companies are going to realize that they need to pay up because paying the sales leader a little bit more than you pay the sales manager when they've done it three times isn't really the answer. It's more like, hey, look what these big company senior executives are making and look at the impact that, that 
I'm able to have in this the sales leadership job in a scaling company, and it's kind of they're, more apples to apples. They're, they're so worried about their their budgets, though, right? Like yeah, yeah. You're like a, a Series A, Series B, even shit, even Series C kind of kind of company, right? Yep. They're so cash constrained, at least in their mind, and and you know they're thinking about, well, I don't want to spend you know two hundred thousand dollar base salary and a four hundred thousand dollar OTE on this particular head of sales, and you know one to one and a half percent is like plenty for them. It's like Hold on, dude. Yeah, right. Your company was valued at, you know, virtually nothing <laughs> right. a few years ago. And now you're valued at 100, 200, 500 million dollars, <laughs> a billion dollars. Like, we have created so much wealth for you. Yeah. And you're worried about paying me a couple hundred thousand dollars a year? Or pay the piper. Pay money? the piper. Right. And, and that, that's maybe that, maybe you're right. Maybe that's why, you know, more sales leaders will start going to work for much larger companies. Well, here, here's the value. Yeah, here's how I see it. There's a couple of things. So one, uh, to all the CEOs and all the VCs who are listening, <laughs> you've got, you have a choice. You can either sit and listen to Richard Rant for the next 30 seconds, and I will give you an MBA in all your problems. <laughs> or you can just fast forward, hit that little loop three times because you're afraid to hear the truth. And the truth is, is that one, um, because I did it no longer works. That's the first thing. Well, that's what I had to do. I had to do it. And it's a little bit like medical school, right? Like you hear about these doctors doing 36 hour shifts. And the only reason they do it is because the other people above them used to do it. Yep. Right? And that's really, really stupid. So I'm calling all the VCs and CEOs and founders stupid. If you think that just because you did, that's one thing. Two, Sales is way more simple than you think, but it's com so complex in your head that you you bring us in to build this revenue for you, and then you want to shit us out the pot two years later because you think you know what you're doing. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen amazing VCs, amazing VPs of sales come in, go from zero to 10 million, 20 million, include that valuation, then two and a half years later, this technical founder seems to think that they know all it is about sales. Yeah, right. Um, and they don't know jack squat. CEOs and founders think that people buy because it's easy. What they always forget is that they're buying the CEO or the founder. They're buying you as a human and your vision way more than they're ever buying your product and service. They trust you to solve the problem. And that's why they're doing it. That doesn't translate well when you're a salesperson. As much as you think it should, it just doesn't, which is the other reason I tell every salesperson in the world, please take your title off your email signature. Nobody needs to know what your title is in your emails. So those are the things that bother me. And then the last thing that I would say is that VCs are really good at oftentimes, and I like this about VCs, well, let's let the CEO and this 20-something-year-old kid figure it out. Well, you can do that, but you could probably accelerate by six to nine months, not 12, if you gave them a couple of hints about how to really run a sales org, yeah. it's that hard. And then finally to Scott's point, you know, no, I'm not going to come in and bust my ass for you to, for my one half of 1%. <laughs> Screw you. Like I should be getting as much as you because I'm the one who's driving your initial valuation. So. Well, th that's why I'm curious if, if, if people who have, who have kind of been there and done that before, will start just going this free agent kind of route and running, running more of our own, I think so, but we're not going to get any more, we're not going to get more wealthy because of it. We're not going out and building billion dollar valuations, right? Like that's the challenge. I think we get tired. I think we're tired of doing it and we're tired of being beaten up. 
And from my perspective, you know, people always say, well, Richard, why can't I hire you? And I say, because you can't afford me. And they're like, sure, I can. And I throw out this ridiculous number and I explain to them the rationale of why I'm probably more valuable to them than they are as a founder from a revenue perspective. And they get a little insulted and I go, and the real reason you can't hire me is because I don't play well in the sandbox with others. I'm going to call it out every single time. And that is, you know, that's my mantra. I don't play nicely with other kids in the sandbox. I'm, I'm the selfish kid with the single pail and the single shovel. And uh, no, I'll let you decide. I'll decide if you can play with it. So, so that's me. Okay. My rant is over. So uh, <laughs> welcome back. Welcome back to all the VPs of sales and, uh, and, and the VCs who fast forwarded because you were too much of a wuss to listen to Richard's truth. But, um, and now we're going to turn it back to Corey because this is not about Richard. That's funny. Uh, Corey, what do you see? Like, or, or do you see it that way or do you see it differently? Um, are you a little more, uh, since, you know, uh, friendly than Richard is about this stuff? I, I think that in the venture world, the biggest problems are that CEOs lie about what their, their forecasts are. They've got this artificial move up market. And so they, they project this thing that they think will happen, but they have no idea if it's actually going to happen or not. So they, they end up with product market fit here at the lower tier. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, we're just going to replicate that at the enterprise. But they don't follow traditional product development guidelines. They don't do user testing. They don't methodically go out and get their first handful of customers, create customer stories. And then I, I love that you just said the product market fit fear. Yeah. What, what is that? Well, they don't just because. But what is it? What does it mean when you say that? What, what were you visualizing in your head when you use those words? Because the, just because small businesses buy your product and use it every day doesn't mean that big businesses will buy your product and use it every day. And just because a lot of other companies used to sell to small businesses and now they sell to big businesses doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for you to do or that it's even possible for you to do. And I've seen a lot of companies just flame out because they try to go up market to and sell bigger deals to bigger companies. All of a sudden it's like, Oh, whoops, that didn't work. And then what happens is the innovators dilemma Clayton Christensen's book from the early 2000s is that smaller companies come in behind them and they say, Oh, well, look, they're just leaving this part of the market alone. I'm going to just go build a business selling to that market. What are the biggest mistakes that you see people? And I love that you hit on this. I want to give a good takeaway when people decide to go up market, right? And for those who don't know, that means going from selling to SMB or mid market to the legitimate enterprise or the fortune world. Everybody sort of wants to come up, particularly, you know, where we swim a lot is in Silicon Valley. Everybody thinks they can go sell this to the fortune suite, right? Um, what are the biggest mistakes you see people doing, um, going, trying to go up market either too soon or without the right things in place? Well, they're not honest with themselves about where they're at and what their actual opportunity is. When you're starting the company, you don't go out and build something and start trying to sell it to everybody. You go out and figure out, well, what's, what's the market need? Build some prototypes, start selling MVPs, minimum viable products, hit, hit different milestones along the way. But when you've already got a big company, it's so tempting to say, well, we will just replicate this up market. We'll, we'll change some of our, our small business sellers into big business sellers and give them a little more time and then it'll, it'll all be great. And then that's oversimplifying what actually happens. But let's say you're tasked with doing that yeah. right? as a sales rep or as a sales leader, right? You're, whether or not it's the right thing to do is kind of part of the sure. discussion, but like, let's say you're tasked with that. Yep. What, what advice do you give the AEs out there <clears throat> who right now 
um, are moving from an SMB or mid-market sale to an enterprise sale, like what do they need to get good at real quick in order to give themselves the best shot? They might be being sent on a bit of a suicide mission, but like to give themselves the best shot to make it work, what do they need to get good at right away? Yeah, I think, I think the best thing is goal setting and the ability to reflect on if something's working or if it's not. So for example, if the goal is to sell $2 million in enterprise in the next year, well, what has to happen in the first month? And if that doesn't happen, what are the signals that that's happening in the first month? So maybe it's building pipeline, for example, you know, a certain number of, of, of qualified opportunities in the door. Well, what happens if one month in we have no qualified opportunities in the door? Now we might need to adjust course and either change what we're doing, add people, I don't know, something, but don't just keep going down this path for nine months and be like, well, it doesn't look like we're going to get there. If you had signals at month one or month two that things weren't working and you still had lots of runway to be able to adjust course. That's what I think. I don't know. What do you guys think? Thank you, I, I haven't been an executioner in the world, so I think it's a little unfair. Yeah. I, 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 I think that, I think Scott, you just did this, didn't you? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Last yeah, eighteen yeah. months, you did this at Folio, right? Last, well, other than the last three months, I, I I spent the last three years and one month. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you know, I um, it's interesting. You know, you, you get pigeonholed. You get good at something. You get pigeonholed as like only being able to do that, right? Yep. So I can remember, you know, not getting job offers because oh, I'd never built an enterprise sales org before. Like, right. I built these other five sales orgs before, right? And th those ones don't count yep. because of this, right? So, you know, that, that, that part of me and it's like, well, fuck you. I can, now I'm going to, I'm going to do that just to spite you, right? That was like <laughs> part, of the, part of the motivation for me to, to take on this, this gig. So, you know, I, I made the transition. It's interesting that you mentioned goal setting. I think most people think of goal setting as like a personal uh, a personal thing. It's like a new New Year's resolution. Uh, what are the goals for my myself, right? And I and I think that that concept of goal setting in order to hit your number, right, as as a rep is very different. And I don't think that those conversations happen all that all that often, you know. And and especially around the the pipeline building, like yep. Th there's people who are in a transactional sales role right now who don't don't really even know anything about pipeline management because their cycle is so fast. Things go in and out and close and drop off. So there's just a, a lot more coaching and explanation education that needs to be there with reps to explain to them, Here, here's your goal. You have a $2 million quota for the year. Yep. Right? right. You got to do a half million each, each quarter. Like in order to do a half million each quarter, you've got to have, you know, Five million in the pipeline per quarter, whatever the the ratio is, right? Um, and then talking to them about how to start building that pipeline. I, I know it sounds simple yeah, for, yeah. for a lot of people, but like if you're a brand new rep, you walk into this more enterprise role, and they say, "Okay, go out there and build pipeline." Like, what do you do? Exactly. What well, and that, that goes back to to the sales education. So you guys hire lawyers that didn't go to law school, or accountants that don't have accounting degrees, and then just come in and hope that they can figure it out. Or, or do you hire people who have actually done the job before and have training and expertise? And you can go either way. But like you said, Scott, make sure that you know what, you're, what you've got. And if your team doesn't know how to do it, then budget that bandwidth in there for training. And then yeah. maybe if the two million, the goal is $2 million, it can't be 500 k a quarter. It might be zero in the first quarter. Yeah. But putting those incremental milestones in place and so you know what 
what on track looks like helps you wake up at the end of the year and not, not. Yeah. And, 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 and that, that, and that's a, mis- that's a mistake and, and a, a way that, you know, people like myself uh, and others get underestimated. Right. So I, I got told like, well, you, you won't be able to build this, you know, enterprise sales org because you've never, <laughs> never done it before. But I'm, I'm, you know, what they don't realize is I've been in the trenches for 15 years teaching day in and day out, teaching reps, teaching managers, teaching sales ops people, teaching recruiters, right? And so for me, like I took people who didn't have a ton of enterprise experience and put in time early teaching them everything I knew about pipeline building and this new type of sale and the new sales cycle and these processes and everything. And, and then that original core of, you know, five, six people grew into 10 or 12. And then those people, as the company grows, start to take over a lot of the teaching. Cause you know, by the time I left, I got a hundred something people in my department. Like I, I'm not doing new hire onboarding like I used to do, Yep. but that precedent has, has been set. So, you know, as you're looking for like a enterprise sales leader, do you need somebody who's, who's been in the enterprise for, you know, a decade or more who's looked at spreadsheets and done nothing else for God knows how long, or do you need somebody who's been in the trenches coaching and teaching? They they want people who know how to pick up stuff off the fax machine, like Corey said. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, here's, here's the best part. Maybe that's the best interview question because like Richard knows this, there's no fucking way I can operate a fax machine. No, because you're dinosaur at your fax machine. I don't, I don't know how, yeah, I don't know how to operate. I don't know how to do normal things. Barely, like if I, if I don't show up, I got to teach Scott how to hit the record button on Zoom. Yeah, I probably that, don't know how to record. That's no joke. That's a legit yeah. issue with us. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other funny thing is if, when, when they hire people, a lot of times when I see companies hire people and it doesn't matter what role it is, it's manage, management plus all the way up. I'm sitting there thinking, okay, so this person is so great, but nobody they used to work for wants to hire them. And they're sitting here trying to meet new people that they've never met before and get jobs. And that's a totally viable thing to do, but it just, it's a little spidey sense is going off. It's like, okay, so they've crushed it everywhere and people change jobs so much. All of those people are everywhere else. And they're, they're out looking for a job on their own. What's going on back there? Yeah, I have a question. I want, and I want to hear both of you banter a little bit about this. And then I know we sort of need to wrap up, but Scott, you know, I've, I've known you and, and loved you and cared about you for years and, you know, watched your career grow and um, all those things, right? What did it finally take? How are you finally able to, for lack of a better phrase, convince the founders or CEOs that you actually do know what the hell you're doing when, it, you know, look, you just took them from zero to 10 or 15 million that, that look, here's how we need to do enterprise. And what, what advice would you give someone to, if they're in that situation now, and Corey, I want to hear yours from the outside perspective of, look, I am the right person. Yeah. I got you here. It doesn't mean I deserve it because I got you here. It certainly means I'm worthy of consideration because I got you here. But what are the tactical things you could give someone in that situation so they can grow their career? Because I know that's, you know, I've had hour, hours yeah. of conversation around this and, and I think it's yeah. really important. Well, I, I, I think earlier on in my career, um, I, I really thought that kind of rounding out my resume was the right thing to do. And I have this conversation with people all the time who are like in transactional sales and they're like, I need to move to mid-market because then I need to move to enterprise and, and back and back and forth up, up that, up that ladder. And I, some, I don't remember who, but somebody a long time ago said to me, you know, 
why don't you just kind of stick with what you're really good at already and become like the best at that particular thing. So there's no more debate. And then when you go try to do this other thing, your, your, your reason for doing it is now not about rounding out the resume. It's, it's because I'm too bored with this other thing. This thing is like too easy, right? Like I've already won at this level. And, and I, and I, and I kind of changed the, the narrative for myself away from, you know, I have not yet built an enterprise sales organization. That's true. And, and like apologizing for it to being like, look, I don't care if it's enterprise or transactional, whatever. Like I know how to build a team. I know how to sell. I know how to take complicated things and make them simple. Right. I know how to create a repeatable, scalable process. I know how to recruit with the best of them. Like it's almost like if you know how to coach, you can coach at any level. Right. Like there are football coaches out there who can coach, who coach at the high school level, who understand the game and can coach just as well as coaches at the collegiate or the professional level. Absolutely. Make, make no mistake about it. They, they, they can. If you know how to coach, you know how to build a team and you know how to hire good people around you and enable them to help you succeed in the areas that you're weak. I don't care if we're selling million dollar deals or $5 deals. Right. And, and, I just started owning that, that story. Did it work every time? No, it didn't work every time. What do you, what do you say to the VC? Right. And I, you know, what do you say to they, the VC who's like, well, Scott, you know, that sounds all well and good, but you know, you know, we, we've invested 20 or $30 million in this company that for us, that feels like a risk. What do you say back to them? Well, what would I would say right now would be, you know, <laughs> look at, look at my, uh, my resume, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, but, but <laughs> I think I would just drop the mic on them, hopefully now a little bit. But you yeah. know, the the the, v, the VCs that are interviewing you, they, I didn't get. I don't get that question very much from from them. I think that they are more respectful, at least face to face. I, I think it's the founders who are uh, asking those questions more often. It's like, so what do you say to your founder then? I would say, well, you know, I'm taking a big risk too. You're 22 years old and you've never been the CEO before, let alone built a billion dollar company. So who's more of a sure thing, me or you? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm 42 years old now. I only yeah, got it, man. They were put on this earth for that. Yeah. yeah that's They're the right. they went to Stanford. Yeah. Everybody needs experience except for the people who started the company. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. Corey, Scott, I let Scott go off on a rant. What do you see around that? Because you, you, you do coach and you do work yeah. organizations and you're trying to either, maybe, I, I assume some of these founders ask you, well, you know, is my, is my VP of sales really the person to take us enterprise or, you know, how do you see that? Well, I, I just, I simply do this, right? Look at the, analyze what they're doing today and do that through a variety of different things and be able to show it back to them. And then, that's why we publish the books is to give what we're talking about a little more credibility and say, here's what you're doing today. Here's the frameworks that would be applied. And either you're on the right track, you're great, go get them tiger, or here's the disconnect that we see and then have a real conversation about if that person probably most importantly has the mindset to be able to adapt to different ideas or if they're just stuck in their ways and want to do it how they did it when they were associate director of, SMB mid-market enterprise sales at Dropbox. Yeah. No. <laughs> or See, that, was, that was funny, right? Yeah. Or box. Yeah. 
all, all of our friends, by the way, to all of our friends who are these people we know, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're not attacking you personally. We're just talking, we're, we're talking about the industry. I'm only attacking the person as the exact title that I just said. Everybody else I love. <laughs> but Corey, we, we like to sort of flip the script a little bit at the end of all of our conversations. You've been so gracious with your time and, and we appreciate it. And, um, and obviously we'll tell people to, to go get your books on Amazon and on Kindle. And, um, I know Scott and I will gladly, uh, donate our voices to do some audio books and do a special chapter if you want us to one day. Um, but how can we help you? How can we help Corey? How can we help your closed loop? What, you know, you've been gracious with your time and your advice. We, we want to give it back to you. How can we do that? Well, I don't, I don't need anything from you guys. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. Well, there's gotta be something. Come on. You know, ask for, ask for, I don't know. There's got, okay, okay, here's what you can do, Richard. You've got two elders on the, uh, on the line here with you, right? Next, next time you're in San Francisco, we're playing a game of pool. How about that? All right, I'll do that. I hope you play. And, then, and then we're going to videotape it. I'm okay with that. Like, I, <laughs> I have, like, Scott knows this. Look, Scott knows that, you know, after multiple surfing sales that I probably struggle more than anybody. Um, so I have no problem. I'm joking. I'm, I'm just, I'm just supposed to be We're not going to videotape it. No, man. Are you coming to surf and sales finally, or are you <sighs> like still like I'm afraid of sharks? Kind of I'm gonna keep man. Okay, so I don't surf. <laughs> what did I just say? <laughs> How often have I gotten up on the surfboard? No, but here's what I, here's what, you don't surf. Me, Richard makes valiant attempts. You know? Valiant attempts. Last time here, I tried, here, here's, I here's a misnomer though. Like ninety percent of people who go to surf and sales have never surfed before. Oh, I have surfed before, and now I don't surf. <laughs> <laughs> I lived I lived in Ocean City, Maryland for a whole summer and I'm not surfing. Oh, okay. Oh, 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 I, mean, right. I know. Okay. West Coast thing now. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I am going to I got into I'm going back to school. I got accepted to Dr. Dave's Billiard University in Fort Collins, Colorado next summer, the advanced program. No, wow. So, you have to get accepted to that? Uh, you have to pay the deposit. Not I was going to say, the acceptance just has to be here, right? <laughs> the acceptance, Richard. We have the acceptance. It's like, let's, that, the that's acceptance like letter is a receipt. University. It's a receipt. It's a receipt, yeah, but his doctor, he's a mechanical engineering professor at yeah. Colorado State, so we're doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love what you guys are doing. I really support it. Let me help promote it. I don't surf. All right. Love you guys. Appreciate so, well, look, man, Corey, this has been fantastic. We obviously love you. We know you all, uh, from a lot of different places. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they get a hold of you or Closed Loop if they have questions about what Closed Loop does? And, and in fairness, tell people what Closed Loop actually does. Well, Closed Loop helps people who have tried to apply the frameworks in our books and couldn't quite figure it out, get it right. Got it. And that means building the sales organization, building the interview process, building the onboarding process, building the training product, like what does that mean? Yeah, building or fixing anything, anything in the sales enablement ecosystem, including coaching frameworks, playbooks, sales methodology, things like that. Got it. But there's a million people that do that. So you I'm not trying to- You how to interview, by the way, because Scott and I think that people suck at interviewing. Well, that's a, interviewing is a big part of the hiring, onboarding, ramping salespeople book. Got it. All right. Yeah. They do suck at interviewing. I absolutely agree with that. Hey, Richard, you have five minutes. You want to come talk to this new guy that's in for an interview? Sure. Yeah. That's the, <laughs> yeah. Pro that's the process. That's yeah. the process. That's the process. Oh, man. Scott, well, tell us. A, I got to find somebody else so I don't make this candidate feel weird. Tell us about <laughs> your new book real quick. My new book. Yeah. Uh, it's going to come out in 2020. And I am writing a book about what it's like 
to actually be a VP of sales. Um, I've got to carve it into three sections. First section is sort of like a how to become a VP of sales. Um, a guide book, if you will, I guess. Here's Sweet. what you're good at. A framework? Uh, section two. What's that? A framework with 25 um, pages of bullet points and chapters. <laughs> Corey's writing that part for me. He has just volunteered to spend 20 to 30 hours. Uh, no, but that, that's, the, that's the first part. Uh, the second part is like really what it's like, how we get treated, the good, the bad, the ugly. And uh, the last part is, you know, a little bit of a, a rant and a take on um, some advice to some founders and, and, the, and the world out there and how we might be able to treat heads of sales a little bit better, incentivize them properly, get them to stick and stay. And uh, we've been stories and interviews from a lot of, you know, friends and, and people that I think a lot of people in the sales community will, will know and, and, and like. Uh, to hear from and, and that's that's what it's all about that's you know? gonna be huge man that's exciting that, that doesn't exist i remember talking to you about this that no day. that doesn't exist yeah no. so that's 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 what it's about love it as long as cool. i as long as i finish it as long as i yep. finish so you got to set those incremental milestones and if you're not hitting them go I, back and, and revisit it so. I'm, all, I'm all about micro goals <laughs> micro goals is the way to go love it all right. So Corey, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate you being on the Surf and Sales podcast, even though you're not a surfer, but you are a sales <laughs> genius, which we do appreciate. Um, love all the stories around pool. We didn't even dive into chess and the strategies around that. Uh, I think we all get it for chess, but I bet we could have another hour conversation about very specific strategies and how they relate to sales. Um, and, and chess, but this has been fantastic for everybody listening. Um, please go check out Closed Loop, check out their books all over Amazon and Kindle. Um, and obviously go ahead and uh, start following Corey on LinkedIn. If you don't follow Scott, follow me, um, particularly if Scott wants to, I guarantee you Scott will have some contest around his new book where he gives it away. So be sure you pay attention to what Scott does. So. All right. Well, thank thanks, you everybody. Guys. We appreciate thanks, it. Corey. Yeah.